Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 465 with Dr. Valerie Young. I think you'll love this conversation because I read many a comment on the surveys. Thanks again for filling those out about feeling imposter syndrome. So we found the foremost expert on the topic to address it. So you'll learn one, just how prevalent imposter syndrome is, two, the five imposter syndrome archetypes, and three, how to strategically shift your thinking from imposter to non-imposter. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep465. And here's her full story. Dr. Valerie Young is an internationally known expert on imposter syndrome. Her career-related tips have been cited in dozens of popular and business publications and media outlets around the world. A former manager of strategic marketing at a Fortune 200 company herself, Valerie has shared her highly relatable and practical advice to tens of thousands of executives, managers, and professionals in companies across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. She's also spoken to students, faculty, and staff at over 85 colleges and universities in the U.S., Canada, and Japan. Thanks to Valerie for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is Valerie. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm really excited, Pete. Thanks for asking me. Oh, I'm excited too. And so we're going to talk about imposter syndrome, which is a hot topic for my listeners But I want to start with hearing a little bit about your personal history and I guess origin story for how you and the imposter syndrome topic got to be well acquainted. Well, (laughs) very well acquainted. I didn't even know there was a name for these feelings until I was in a, a doctoral program when I was about 21 years old at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And someone brought in a paper by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the term the imposter phenomenon, as it is more accurately known in the world of psychology. Hmm. Uh, and she started reading from this study and going, oh my gosh, listen to this, everybody. You know, they found that all these, you know, intelligent, capable, competent people feel like they're fooling folks and they're going to be found out. <laughs> I'm just hmm. nodding my head like a bobblehead doll. How interesting. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, that's me. That's a name for this. Other people feel this way. So it was tremendously liberating just, just to know that there was, there was a name. Mm-hmm. And then you found a posse of imposters. Tell us about that. Well, I did. I mean, you know, now I've gone on to speak to, you know, 
ten, many tens of thousands of graduate students. Uh, and, you know, it turns out it's really epidemic amongst especially graduate students for a host of reasons. But basically looked around the room while I was nodding my head like a bobblehead doll and all the other graduate students were nodding their head. So I, I often tell the story, Pete, that we decided to get together after class for a little imposter support group. And we would talk about being intellectual frauds and how we're fooling all of our professors and everything went great for about three weeks. And then I started to have this nagging sense that even though the other students were all saying they were an imposter, like I knew I was the only real imposter. So clearly they were phony <laughs> imposters. And I was like a Fraudulent. super imposter. <laughs> An imposter amongst imposters. That's right. And they were probably thinking the same thing. Like, ha ha ha, this is really kind of a funny joke that we're saying, but I kind of mean it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Intriguing. So then you mentioned then, I guess, a little bit of the definition for imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome. Can we hear, I guess, the official or since you've done decades of research on this, your definition for what do we call imposter syndrome, if you were to give it like a quick dictionary sentence or two? Sure. Well, I think, you know, as is commonly understood, Pete, is, is this sense, this feeling experienced by countless millions of people around the world, cross-culturally, across industries, the sense that I'm in over my head and they're going to, I'm going to be found out. And what, what really makes imposter syndrome very specific is that there's concrete, clear, evidence of one's accomplishments or capabilities. And yet people who feel like imposters tend to uh, dismiss them, minimize them, or chalk them up to external factors like luck, timing, you know, computer error, personality, and those kinds of things. But, the, but you know, the overwhelming fear then really is that you're going to be found out. Okay. So the fear, it's a fear that you're going to be found out as opposed to, I guess, low self-esteem is just like, you know, I'm not really very smart or good or anything. But I guess imposter syndrome has that extra dose of there's an outcome that you are dreading and think really could happen to you. Yeah, there's definitely an outcome. But I think additionally, Pete, and now some studies, let me be clear, some studies on imposter phenomena have connected, you know, found a connection between self-esteem and imposter feelings. Other studies have not found a connection, which tells me it's possible to have, you know, healthy self-esteem and still have imposter feelings. Mm -hmm. How I look at it is, Self-esteem, think of it as kind of a global sense we have about ourselves, kind of across the board. But imposter feelings are very specific to achievement arenas, work, school, business, career. You know, you, you don't feel like an imposter when you're walking the dog okay. or emptying the dishwasher, <laughs> right? But you do at a job interview or going to your first pitch when, when you start your new business or when you're being challenged on your work, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so just to make it clear, you shared a couple of words, thoughts, phrases, internal self-talk bits you might have in terms of, oh, they're going to find me out. But just to make this really real and resonant and connected for people, could we hear some kind of recurring words and phrases internally that imposters say to themselves all the time? And so we could maybe recognize ourselves within that. Well, you know, I think I mean, clearly there's that, you know, I'm going to be found out, but I'm in over my head. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. Everyone else is smarter than me. Uh, if I was really competent, I wouldn't need any help. Uh, if I was really competent, I'd feel confident. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, like the mm. fact that you even struggle with imposter feelings or confidence in the mind of the person who feels like an imposter just kind of proves that they must be an imposter. Because if I was really competent, I wouldn't feel this way. Mm -hmm. You know, the sense that I should know 150%, you know, this shouldn't be this hard. If I was really competent, I should be able to kind of hit the ground running and figure this out and master it very quickly. So, you know, the voices kind of vary depending on how the person is 
judging or measuring their own competence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's an interesting notion right there. It's, it's sort of related to a catch-22 or is it the opposite? But it's sort of as like, if I am feeling unconfident or if I'm having a hard time, I'm struggling, there's difficulty, then that means I'm no good. And so could you share the truth of the matter? What does it mean when we struggle and are feeling unconfident? If it does not mean that we're frauds, what does it mean? I think it probably means we're in the middle of a normal learning curve. There you go. You know, where we've started something new or unfamiliar. Uh, and so, but I mean, the, the, the problem is that how we view that, you know, that the non-imposter, if you will, says, you know, well, gee, I'll figure it out as I go along. Or, well, I've only been here a week. I can't possibly know everything there is to know about this job, right? But the, the non-imposter walks in and expects themselves to hit the ground running and, and to pick things up, you know, incredibly quickly. So it, it's a difference between how you kind of, how you frame that situation. Well, yeah, let's talk about non-imposters for a moment. And first, so could you share with us, what's the data suggest in terms of the proportion of people, professionals, if you have it, who experience this imposter syndrome? You know, Pete, there is this, um, you know, percentage that's been thrown around since the 1980s, I believe, late 70s, early 80s from uh, Gail Matthews. And, oh, and yeah. where it kind of originated <laughs> is that, you know, up to 70% of high achieving people have experienced these feelings to varying degrees at one time or another, which is, you know, pretty high, which means we are actually in the majority, which of course begs the question, what's up with the other 30? Why aren't we studying them? Why are we writing dissertations about them? Yeah, 70% that is striking. But Gail Matthews, I've cited a paper of hers about goal setting in dozens of keynote speeches. (laughs) So I feel like I I should give her a high five or a hug or a coffee. Oh, wow, that's very cool. So I've never met her in person, but um, I could see the bar chart slide in my mind's eye. But back to the number at hand, 70% are saying that they experience it. 30% don't. Can we just get a glimpse of their world for a moment? Like, is that dangerous in its own right if you don't have any imposter syndrome? Like, are these the folks who have exaggerated views of their own competence and end up, you know, singing terribly on American Idol and feeling very foolish or like, what's the non-imposter life like? You know, it's interesting you say that because that's definitely some portion of that 30% have, as you say, the the opposite problem, which is irrational self-confidence syndrome, that their, their sense of their knowledge and abilities far exceeds their actual knowledge and abilities which was actually a phenomenon that became documented by Professor Dunning at Cornell. It's now known as the Dunning-Kruger effect that did find through, you know, multiple (laughs) consistent studies that found that the people who have the lowest expectations for how they're going to perform on on an exam, for example, performed the best. And the people who were quite certain that they were going to ace it (laughs) often performed the worst. So we often Mm. don't see our own our own limitations. But here's the thing, you know, and, and that's why I, I, I don't buy into this notion of we should embrace our imposter syndrome because it keeps us humble. Because I think it's a false choice, Pete. You know, it's like, it's like the choice is between I'm going to be an arrogant, you know, kind of smartest guy in the room, you know, person who really isn't that competent or an imposter. I mean, you, you know, most people are going to, oh, I'll keep the imposter syndrome. But I think that there's a whole middle ground 
of people I describe as kind of non-imposters who are part of that 30% who just have a very different way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's intriguing. And so they might view the world in that they have exaggerated views of themselves or do or you think that they're just like super healthy with regard to their acknowledging, yeah, so I am in the middle of a normal learning curve. You, you think it, that's more of the picture there? Absolutely. You know, that I, I, my, you know, I always tell people that the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. People, um, let's separate out, you know, the, the arrogant people or, or who really are not competent. Let's kind of put them in a different box right now. What I'm talking about is people who don't feel like imposters in, in a healthy kind of way. They're no more intelligent, capable, competent, qualified than the rest of us. That the, the only difference between them and us is in the exact same situation that triggers an imposter response in us. They are thinking different thoughts. That's it. Mm. Which I think is incredibly good news because it means all we have to do is learn how to think like non-imposters. Ooh, yes. Well, I was going to get there later, but I can't resist. All right. How do we do that? So the key ways we need to adjust our thinking. Well, there's three kind of categories of things that non-imposters think differently about Pete. First of all, they think differently about competence. Mm-hmm. Competence with a P. Competence, yeah. Competence. Yeah, competence with a yep. com. <laughs> and it sounds like confidence, but I'm, competence. Um, people who feel like imposters tend to fall into different um, kind of mindsets about how they measure their, our competence, right? We We hold ourselves to these unrealistically high, unsustainably high standards that no human could consistently hit. So you might be a perfectionist, for example. So in, in your kind of mental rule book, 99 out of 100 would be unacceptable. All right. You know, forgetting to make some minor point in an otherwise flawless presentation, you'll beat yourself up endlessly. But but the non-imposter, they still can set high standards for themselves and they have a healthy drive to excel but they don't feel shame when they fall short as long as they tried their best. Okay, okay. Other people who feel like imposters, their definition of imposter syndrome, and there's, there's five of them, and I'm happy to go through them or not with you. Let's but, do them all, yeah. But the second one is the kind of the knowledge version of the perfectionist, the person I think of as kind of the expert. That doesn't mean they are an expert. It means that they think they have to know 150% before they speak up, raise their hand, start their business, go after a promotion, uh, you know, and they're just they're endlessly searching for that, like waiting to wake up one day and think like, now I'm an expert. So they never feel like they know, know enough. Then there's the person I describe as the natural genius. Again, it's not that they're a genius. It's that they somehow got it into their head that if, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they have to struggle to understand something or master something in their mind kind of proves they're an imposter because they're defining competence as being about ease and speed. They look at other people and they think, oh, that looks so easy. Yeah. And then they try it and they, and it's hard, but they don't understand that that other person worked their ass off to get good or they might be naturally good at something, which we all are. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, the soloist, as it sounds, who thinks it only counts if they do it all by themselves. So they're going to feel shame if they have to ask for help. They don't give themselves credit if it's a team effort. And then, of course, the superwoman, superman, super student who expects themselves to excel across multiple you know, um, roles they play in their life. So non-imposters think differently about competence in that they realize that not everything can or needs to be perfect. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes you just have to kind of jump in and figure it out or just like, just don't persevere over the routine tasks. Obviously, if you're driving, you know, flying a plane, right? you're performing surgery, please be a perfectionist. But, you know, but, but there, the, the mantra I hear from a lot of uh, very successful multimillionaire entrepreneurs is half ass is better than half, half ass is better than no ass. Okay. <laughs> right. And they don't mean do a bad job, but they're, they're not letting perfectionism hold them back. It's like, they know the first version is never going to be as good as the, the 10th version. So they kind of get it out the door yeah. and you can course correct as you go along. <laughs> so they're looking at it very differently. Mm, that's good. So there we have it. We have sort of five archetypes and the lie. Yeah. Kind of competence types really. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see, we got the knowledge, we got the natural genius, we got the soloist, we got the super student. Superwoman, superman. Right? Yeah. What was the fifth one? Uh, the perfectionist, the expert, the natural uh, genius. Yes, perfectionist. Okay, got it. Okay, interesting. So each of these, they have sort of a lie that they're clinging to and you sort of need to see the light based upon sort of where you fall in. And so is there any kind of, bridge you recommend that we cross in order to pull that off successfully or consistently? Yeah, I think it goes back to learning to think like a non-imposter. Like how would a non-imposter, you know, when you're having this moment where you're holding yourself to these unrealistic, unsustainable standards to kind of step back and say, how would a non-imposter think and feel and act in this same situation? Mm -hmm. And it's not just competent that they think differently about people who've don't feel like imposters also look at failure, mistakes, and criticism differently. And they look at, they have a different response to, to fear. Well, let's cover each of these contrasts or distinctions then. So how do we think like non-imposters in each of those contexts? Well, you know, people who feel like imposters experience shame when they fail, mm-hmm. right? No, nobody likes to fail or make a mistake or have an af- off day or have to you know, struggle to master something or have to ask for help. But when these things happen to non-imposters, right, they don't experience shame. Imposters feel shame. And that's a key difference. And can we define shame here? I cannot give you a psychological, you know, version of <laughs> definition of shame. But I mean, I guess it's different than, oh, shucks, that didn't work out the way I wanted it oh, to. Oh, no, no. It, it, it's personal, you yeah. know, beating yourself up, you know, embarrassment, you know, humiliation. Like, I'm stupid. Right. How could I have been so foolish, etc.? Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, it, it's a difference between people, non-imposters, they have, they recognize, they have setbacks, they have failures. And I always want to be clear with people, it's not that they're, you know, okay with it. I mean, they can be crushingly disappointed. I mean, think about sports, right? Intellectually, we all know, one team's going to win and one team's going to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, one team's going to be crying in their towel on the sidelines at the end of the championship. But they don't go home and hang up their uniform and, and quit, right? They they go watch the game tape. They get more coaching. They get back in there and they say, we'll get them next time. So it's really how you handle failures and setbacks that matter. And again, you could be crushingly disappointed if you fail or fall short, but not ashamed. Yeah. The only time you feel shame is if you didn't try or maybe you procrastinated to the very last minute and it didn't really reflect your best effort. Yeah, then shame is called for. But otherwise, there's no shame. Okay, got it. And how about the next one? Um, Well, let me just add one more to that because criticism is, is, is something that is really problematic for people with imposter syndrome. It 
wounds and crushes our soul, right? So if you're, if you're in a job and your, your boss tells you four things you, you did outstanding, right? You're having your performance review, four things you're outstanding, one thing you need to work on. You know, what do you obsess over? Right. <laughs> right. And feel horrible about, right? Cause it's like, it's the equivalent of wanting to win an Oscar every time you make a film. Yeah. But people who feel like imposters are really, uh, it becomes over-personalized. So someone says that report was inadequate. What we hear is, I'm inadequate. Right. Instead of, and non-imposters not only see constructive feedback and criticism as, as invaluable, but they seek it out. They might pay coaches ridiculously good money, as I have in the past, to give them really direct, honest feedback about how they can perform. Or, or even if someone says, you know, they did an outstanding job, the non-imposter will say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done even better? Mm-hmm. So there's a distinction there between your performance and your, I guess, worthiness or goodness as a fundamental human being. Oh, absolutely. Gotcha. Cool. And to see yourself as kind of this work in progress, you know, that you're always going to be getting better. And the last thing that non-imposters think differently about is fear. You know, when I'm speaking to to a large audience, Pete, I'll often say, how many of you would like to feel confident 24-7? And lots of people raise their hand. And my response is always, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny. As you say that, I imagine a life that's a little bit less exciting in terms of like, if I always felt confident, I think I'd get bored. <laughs> like uh, a little bit of, oh boy, uh, can I handle this? <laughs> you know, it makes things kind of makes things kind of exciting for me. Well, yeah, and it's normal and it's realistic. I mean, yeah. uh, Denzel Washington, before he walked on stage to be in a Broadway show in Fences, he said, when he's standing in the wings, if you don't have that, what the hell am I moment here, doing here moment, you know, it's time to hang it up. Mm-hmm. So then how do the non-imposters handle the fear? They just sort of like Denzel Washington say, yep, that's there <laughs> and it's all good. Absolutely. I mean, some incredibly successful, you know, uh, performers, uh, artists, entertainers, uh, singers have terrible stage fright, but they they don't lean into the fear. You know, I always recommend people understand that your body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. Right. You know, sweaty palms, nervous stomach, dry throat. You know, so you just have, as you're walking on stage or into the job interview or up to the podium or whatever it might be, you just have to keep telling yourself, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited. Then you have to keep going regardless of how you feel. Because what everyone's waiting for, Pete, is to feel more confident. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, when I feel more confident, then I'll do it. No, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) You got to do the thing. You're like, maybe I can't perform on Broadway, but I'm going to Give it my best shot, right? Put yourself out there and do it. Learn from it. Try again and keep going. Yeah, that's great. That's well put. So we're waiting to feel more confident before we do it, but that is just backwards. <laughs> you got to do it and then you'll feel more confident. Absolutely. I mean, it's order to really change your thoughts. Start thinking like a non-imposter, even though you don't believe the new thoughts yet. I mean, somebody said to me, I was speaking at a group and, and she raised her hand and said, well, this is great, Valerie, but what if you tell yourself all this stuff and you still don't believe it? Mm-hmm. And my response is, no, trust me, you won't believe it. <laughs> you believe the old thoughts, the old imposter rule book. So, but you have to keep telling yourself. But if you just can't say to yourself, aren't I entitled to make a mistake once in a while? Aren't I entitled to have an off day? I mean, that's the way non-imposters think. You may not 100% believe it. 
that day, but over time you start thinking, yeah, I am as entitled as the next person to get it wrong, have it off day, not know the answer. Mm-hmm. And you also have a strategy you recommend when it comes to reframing. Can you hear about this? Well, and that really is the process of, of thinking like a non-imposter is to step back and to say, okay, so here, become consciously aware of the conversation going on in your head when you're having a very normal imposter moment and then try to reframe it the way you imagine a non-imposter would. Mm-hmm. I often share one of my favorite <laughs> reframes was Daniel Boone, the wilderness explorer, who said, I was never lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you're successful, you could frame that like an imposter or a non-imposter. Can you give us an example of that? I'm not sure what you're asking. Say more about that. So Daniel Boone got lost <laughs> and he reframed that as he was bewildered, which is cool. But sometimes an imposter can even frame a success or a good result or a victory in a non-affirming way about themselves, whereas the non-imposter would do so differently. Right. So the imposter, I think this is what you're getting at, might say, well, it's only because yes. I had help or it's just, be- yeah, they said they love my presentation, but it's just because they like me or it was a good audience. <laughs> right? um, and those two things might be true, but you're not including yourself in that in that equation. Certainly. And I think, you know, not imposters make an effort to celebrate successes so that it becomes, whether it's a conscious desire or not, but it kind of consciously, you know, weds it in your mind and makes that connection between your efforts and outcome mm-hmm. and that you need to reward yourself. I mean, we spent nearly enough time rewarding ourselves in positive ways for the for the little and big wins, there'd be less to feel like an imposter about. You know, we had BJ Fogg on the show earlier, who's amazing. And he was talking about how important it is to celebrate because he was talking about in the context of making habits, saying that um, emotions build habits. And most people are very bad at, at celebrating themselves, even if it's just a little nice job, Valerie, <laughs> you know, like internally for like three seconds. Most of us struggle with that. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. And as you said, even from small things to, you know, for, for folks who are familiar with, you know, making a list of things they're grateful for, to just, you know, just step back at the end of a, a project and say, you know, I'm really happy that I, I you know, did these three things or I did a good job or good for you for, for trying, regardless of the outcome. I mean, I think that's important too, to not just celebrate the wins. It's like, did you give it your best shot? Mm-hmm. That's good. You know, I got my book deal with Random House. I, I had a great agent. She took me around New York. We had two days of interviews scheduled with some of the biggest publishing houses in the in the industry. And and I was pretty nervous for the for the first one. And the irony was not lost on me, Pete. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that I'm pitching this book, right? I don't I'm, belong here yeah, talking I'm, to the top publishers. <laughs> exactly. Looking out the skyline of Manhattan, sitting in these beautiful, you know, uh, conference rooms. Um, but I decided no matter what I was going to, this is when iPhones just came out, I was going to get myself an iPhone for just kind of being in the running, right? Uh, when my book came out, I had already decided to, I was going to buy this painting. Like, again, it did my, a friend of mine said, well, what if you buy this painting and then the book's a flop? It's going to remind you of that all the time. I said, to the contrary, the picture's going to remind me that I gave it my best shot. And after that, the outcome is out of my control. Mm, that's good. That is good. 
Oh, well, we're having so much fun here. I had lots of stuff I wanted to make sure we covered. So I'm curious, like, for the hardcore imposters, I'd be like, okay, Valerie's saying some really encouraging things. But no, I seriously don't belong in my role. Like, I guess at times, our doubts about our capabilities are accurate. Yes. So how can we kind of get, you know, nuanced and appropriately distinguish, like, what's sort of just an impostery thought we should just discard, like, oh, that's silly, versus what's like, yeah, you're right, I am kind of outmatched here, and I gotta, you know, take some steps to get where I need to be. Well, you, you just said it right there. I mean, the reality is, you may be in a situation, as we all probably have been at one time, where we're really out of our element, or thrown into something where we're you know really over our head. But it, again, it goes back to the difference between saying, I'm an imposter and they're going to find out versus saying, you know, what an amazing learning opportunity. No, perfect. Yeah. Let me marshal whatever resources there are available to me, whether it's time or, you know, brain power or, you know, how can I, you know, grow into this position and recognize that I'm in the middle of a really, you know, <laughs> I'm in a learning curve. I mean, you know, think about it. There are CEOs that go from the CEO of an insurance company to a manufacturing company. They have zero experience in manufacturing, but they look at it. And again, then they're scared, by the way. There was a study out of the UK that found it was 80% of CEOs and 81% of managing directors sometimes feel out of their depth. That's encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> well, but it, I think I look at it as a normal response to being in new situations and, and, a, and a rapidly changing world, whether technology wise or advancements or, you know, just trends where you're never going to know it all. Right. And you're never going to do everything perfectly your, yourself. And you don't need to. There are other people who can, you know, we think we think we're supposed to excel at everything, but we're not going to excel at everything. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I was going to ask. So we had that seventy percent figure that's been thrown around, and you know, not that we need to slice and dice it, you know, fifty different ways as scientists sometimes like to do. But you shared an interesting stat there with eighty percent of CEOs feel out of their depth at times. Do we see the proportion of folks who feel impostery vary by either? Gender, industry, seniority, functional area. It sounds like the more senior people felt it even more than the 70%. Yeah, I do think the higher up you go, the more susceptible you are. I mean, there's, you know, there's more scrutiny, there's farther to fall. Mm -hmm. If you're in a highly educated environment like academia or, you know, certain scientific fields. Somebody said to me recently, Pete, I was speaking at a university, I think it was Michigan State. And she said, this is crazy. You know, I shouldn't feel like an imposter. I have a PhD. I said, no, you feel like an imposter because you have a PhD. Because <laughs> <laughs> now people look at you a certain way. Uh, people in, uh, you're right, certain fields, creative fields, you know, writing, um, acting, music, even producing. Uh, Chuck uh, Laurie, uh, producer of Three and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory, other shows have talked about feeling like a fraud when he walks onto the set. You know, when you're in a creative field, you're only as good as your last book, your last performance. You're being judged by subjective standards by people whose job title is professional critic. People in medicine, uh, technology, areas that are rapidly advancing and very, you know, information dense, they also tend to be more susceptible. Mm -hmm. 
and you wrote your book specifically for women. How do you think about gender in this? Women as a group tend to be, you know, we're kind of generalizing here, right? They tend to be uh, more susceptible for a host of reasons. Uh, but there are plenty of men who who feel like imposters. And that's one reason, honestly, I, I actually hate the title of my book. I hate it. <laughs> I didn't want it. I argued against it. Clearly, I lost the battle. And I hate it for a few reasons. It, it does leave men out. And, uh, you know, men almost are always at my 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 talks when I speak in organizations. Um, so it leaves men out. Uh, but also even women who by any measure are successful, we don't often resonate with that term. So you could have, you know, a, a junior in college in an engineering program you know, and she really could benefit from the book, but she's not going to see herself in that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when, um, what is her name? Sandberg. Uh, why am I forgetting her? Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook. Is that mm-hmm. her name? Yeah. Right. Lean in. When she was asked a question by a reporter once, she said, and the question was like something like, do you, do you consider yourself successful? And she hesitated before she answered, you know, in the affirmative, but she hesitated, which I really get because success can also separate us from other people. So I think it's important to say here that not every, sometimes we might hesitate in the face of uh, achieving greater levels of success and we think it's confidence and it could be, but it could also be other factors like in varying iterations, success can separate us from other people. And if relationships are important to you, then that might kind of hold you back, even on a very unconscious level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about sort of the long term here. I think we had a lot of great perspective in terms of in the heat of the moment, you know, reframing and thinking about things differently. When it comes to you know building your career day after day, month after month, year after year, how do you think about this differently at all? You meet or you're saying, how would someone? I'd say those who experience imposter syndrome, who are looking to grow their careers over the long term, do you have any pro tips from all your research here? Well, I think, you know, in some ways it's the answer is right in the question that, that it's always a long game. Mm-hmm. And the more you can see yourself as a work in progress uh, and understand that you don't need to to know it all or have done it all, you know, one thing that I think holds people back from becoming even more successful is we make this assumption that we have to have to know have already basically done that previous job before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or again, a mindset. Let me give you an example. There was a guy in my town here in Massachusetts who he was on the town select board um, for 12 years and he ran for reelection and he lost. Well, for a lot of people who feel like imposters, that would be just devastating right, to lose this election. The next day, this guy went out. He 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 submitted the papers at that you know in Boston at the state house to to run for um, state rep, which is like a statewide level. He was on the he was on the mm-hmm. town level. He went to the next level, and his quote was, "It was the next natural step." Yeah, <laughs> and so you know the message there is sometimes shooting higher after a setback is the next natural step, but that's not going to be intuitive to people who feel like imposters. Oh, certainly. And then when it comes to even taking on specific challenges or opportunities that you don't quite think you're ready for, how do you evaluate those decisions? Well, I think it's important to talk it through with people, but I, I would say it, it very, there's very few instances where I would tell somebody, 
no, you really can't do it. You know, I would say jump in, trust that you can figure it out as you go along, you know, figure out who your support network is and how you're going to, you know, learn and grow into this new role and just, you know, give it your best shot. But put your hat into the ring and understand that you're being hired based on your capacity and your potential. Mm-hmm. Well, Valerie, I'd love to get maybe uh, before we shift gears into your favorite things, could you share with us a couple quotations or stories from some of your most super accomplished imposters? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a guy at Stanford University. He said, I figure if I can get a PhD in astrophysics from from Caltech, I'm sorry, from Caltech, anybody can. <laughs> right. Because I'm a moron. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, I had to point out to him that most of us can't even balance our checkbook. So, you know, I don't think so. Well, yeah, that's awesome. More, please. And then there's some wonderful kind of famous quotes, right? Jodie Foster, the interview on 60 Minutes many, many years ago when she had gotten the Academy Award for the accused. Now, when she was at Yale University, she took time out of acting to go to Yale. She felt like an imposter when she got accepted into Yale. And she felt like an imposter when she got the Academy Award. And then the quote was something to the effect of, I kept waiting for them to come, knock on the door and take the Oscar back and say, excuse me, we meant to give that to Meryl Streep. <laughs> Which is fascinating because Meryl Streep years later was did an interview with Ken Burns. And he asked her, you know, uh, do you think you'll always act? And her response was, well, I always think, who would want to see me act? And what do I know about acting? <laughs> right. It's like the most Academy Award dominated actor of all times. Right. And that, if, if that doesn't make you realize this is irrational, nothing will. That's excellent. Thank you. Well, any final thoughts about imposter syndrome before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I would say two seeds I want to plant. One is that when you think about it, Pete, there's a certain amount of arrogance to the imposter syndrome. Because what we're really saying is other people are so stupid. They don't realize we're inept. Oh, that's good. It's like you're a master con man, con right, woman. exactly. If you're able to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. Right. So imagine <laughs> if you would introduce me, Pete, to, oh, you know, Valerie Young, internationally recognized expert. And I was like, oh, brother, come on, Pete. I mean, have you ever had an expert yeah. on your show before? Like one person in Canada recognizes me. That's all that means. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, no, it's more about kind of insulting you. Like, do you get out of the house much or what, Pete? Right? Yeah, you pick me. <laughs> Assumes that whether it's, you know, professors or managers or people who hired or promoted you are, are clients, customers are so inept that they don't recognize you're incompetent, which is which is very arrogant. The other thing I think people need to realize is that this is not all about them. Mm-hmm. That they're, everyone loses when bright people play small. Yeah, I could chew on that for a while. Thank you. Somebody out there could be benefiting, you know, from your full range of knowledge and skills and potential. But when we hold back, there's a cost and a consequence that go far beyond us. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? You know, this is not about imposter syndrome, but this is a quote that I've loved for many, many years. And it's by the actor Will Smith, who said, being realistic is the most commonly traveled road to mediocrity. All right, there it goes. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck's work. Oh, yeah. She wrote a book called Mindset. Uh, I like Honestly, I used to read her stuff in the academic literature. You know, she's in psychology, but people in academia write in such dense, convoluted, jargony ways that it's not always easy to see the 
<laughs> the real power in in the findings. So I'd read her stuff for many years. Then when she wrote her book, Mindset, which is much more written in a very accessible kind of way, it was like, it was very confirming because she was doing all this uh, uh, quantitative research that confirmed everything I've been saying for the last 20 years about how people who don't think like imposters and imposters for that matter, how they think differently about competence, basically. So it was very confirming. If you're a parent, I think you'll really uh, enjoy her book. Let me give you one little, if 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 I have a minute. Oh, sure. One, I think her best exercises is to think about that typical kind of dinnertime conversation with school-age kids, which is, what did you learn in school today? Mm-hmm. To which they say, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> which we did too, right? Or I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And and Dweck said, wouldn't it be more interesting if at once a week, a couple of times, you know, a month, you say, let's all go around the table and talk about something that was difficult, challenging, or we failed at. And how we dealt with it, I'll start. Yeah, that's good. Because what you want to teach is resiliency. Okay. And a favorite habit? I was going to go back to kind of normalizing self-doubt, mm-hmm. reframing, and to kind of keep going regardless. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They kind of quote it back to you often. I hope it's, you know, what I share is that the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is stop thinking like an imposter. You know, people... Remember nothing else, that and if you truly understood that you were entitled to make a mistake, be wrong, have an off day, <laughs> there'd be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? It's so easy. Just go to impostorsyndrome.com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Just, you know, don't play small. Look for an opportunity well, let me, let me say this. We're all going to have an opportunity to feel stupid sometimes in the next 24, 48 hours. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, you know, step up, seize the opportunity and just keep saying to yourself, somebody's going to get that cool job. Somebody's going to do that cool thing. It might as well be me. Beautiful. Well, Valerie, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much and good luck in all of your adventures. Thank you so much, Pete, for having me. Great job. I really appreciated Valerie's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I love so much of what Valerie had to say with regard to one, just about everybody (laughs) that the vast majority of people are experiencing imposter syndrome Two, super geniuses who have astrophysics PhDs are feeling it too. And three, you can escape it by proactively thinking like a non-imposter and getting your reframe on. So handy. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links, the items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F465. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. It is Wade Foster. He is the founder CEO dude behind the company Zapier, which I use and like. And it is a means for automating stuff. So you'll find out if you have any sort of busy work or repetitive stuff in your workday, we are going to slash that with Wade's pro tips. Until next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.